Welcome to the Constructing Greatness Podcast, where I will be sharing real stories with inspiring tradesmen and many other driven and passionate leaders in construction and various other industries. I'm your host, Nicholas Ofak, and I've been in the construction business since 1996 as a construction manager and have worked for some of the largest builders in the United States. I'm now a business owner entrepreneur and partner in a firm where we've successfully managed to be listed on the Inc. 5000 America's fastest growing private companies three years in a row. The main purpose of this podcast is to inspire and create awareness about the value of working in the trades and to educate about the great benefits and rewarding opportunities it can create. Are you ready to take this fun journey with me? Let's do it. Today I'm joined by someone that's very, very special to me professionally and personally this gentleman is the most ethical highest of character conscientious leader that i think i've ever met and i'm proud to say that he's my business partner mike welcome to the show man wow that was uh that was the best entrance i've ever had nick so <laughs> i appreciate that absolutely it's all true man mike is an ecu grad bachelor's of science in construction management. He has well over a half a billion dollars of constructed work, some in the magnitude of, of well over $100 million projects. Red Bull Stadium and or Arena is one of them. I believe that was $162 million. And uh, Conrad New York Hotel, what was that, Mike, about $120 million? Yeah, it was about $120 million. Super fast track job, too. If you give people some perspective on jobs of that size, like how many people are working to manage projects of that size, just to give people perspective? Yeah, so uh, so Red Bull was uh, 162 million. It was built from the first pilings that drove into the ground until you know a couple of days before opening day uh, game is when we uh, got our CEO, which was a two-year project. I would say at at the peak. We had about 350 people, tradesmen, working on site, and our management staff, so we were the construction manager, we held all the, the subcontracts, awarded all the work, managed all the schedules and cost, you know, finance and, and, and contracts. We had, I would say, 18 to 22 people in management on that project from executive senior PM. I was the senior PM four project managers beneath me, three assistant project managers beneath them, a general superintendent, three to five superintendents under him. Wow. uh, At at any given time, plus an admin, a full-time accountant on the project. Just one admin, only one admin. I think we did have one admin. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, I I lost track of how many that was, but I'd say, I would say around 18, 18, uh, management. That's an awful lot. So what, as a senior project manager, what were, can just give me some broad responsibilities of what you're, you were responsible for on a project of that size. Yeah. So I had a strong understanding of the finances of, of, of projects, cost control and cash flow forecasting. And that was very important to our company at the time. 
we were our the construction manager we used to work for was owned by a bank so finances and and financial forecasting was you know very high priority to them as well as cost control uh meaning the processing identification and processing of change orders and on that particular project we had so the final contract there was 162 million we had I want to say about $25 million in change orders, primarily due to a complete redesign of the interior of the space. All the club club suite and amenities spaces where they actually got rid of their interior designer, totally redesigned it mid-project, like about six months in. And that, that really drove the, the, the changes on the project. So with that kind of turmoil, having someone strong in the in the financial side of things to keep the project moving and protect the company that we were working for as well as the subcontractors from getting those those costs submitted reviewed and approved with the client which in this case was red bull of austria and getting their signature on them so that we can keep the work going in the field i'd say my primary job was handling all the finance financial side of the project Secondary was kind of oversight of the project managers and their communication with the field superintendents. And then, you know, a third tier level of responsibility was any time where there was a real complex design issue that was starting to get stalemated and, you know, kind of like a bottleneck for the project, I I would have to jump in on those on those key issues and and work out those details between you know the subcontractors and the design professionals and material suppliers and all that. Mike and I's path, we, we met while we were working together at Hunter Roberts Construction Group. In fact, I believe it was at a YouTube concert. We, we knew of each other. I, I knew Mike, you know, Mike was five, about five years younger than me. I knew he was running some of the largest work in the New York City, North Jersey market. And I was in the Philadelphia market running some of the largest work in Philly as a project manager. And uh, we, I think we met at a YouTube concert. It was a, it was a kind of a Hunter Roberts subcontractor type outing, I believe. Yeah, met you and your wife, and I believe your wife was pregnant at the time, if I remember correctly. Um, I, th- I think, I think she was I pregnant with your she, son. Yeah, she, she, she was either pregnant or we were like uh, two weeks after having my son. Okay, I think that's what it was actually. I think we were. He oh. was born like two weeks before. Okay, and uh, you know, Got maybe it. three. And we had gotten away for the night, went to the concert, stayed in Philly, and then and then went home. The first night out, probably, right? Yeah, first night out, absolutely. <laughs> Got it. So we, Mike and I actually had very similar paths. We actually worked at two different companies, the same companies. I also Skanska USA. You, yep. you spent a little time with, you know, as did I, and you started at Henderson Group out of, right out of college, correct? Yeah. As a, as a project engineer, what, what was your responsibilities as a project engineer? Yeah. So um, just right out of now. college, so I went to ECU for construction management and got home back to New Jersey and was just, I think this is funny at the time, you know, this will, this will date us. I believe I faxed a number of resumes uh, <laughs> out as well as emailing them. Facts. What's uh, up? There were, there were no indeeds at the time mm-hmm. to uh, to utilize, and uh, I just fired off resumes, 
and in about a week, Henderson Corp out of Bridgewater, New Jersey, got back to me for an interview and ended up getting hired with them. And so I was a project engineer, which is like kind of your first step in a lot of these construction management, general contracting firms, large firms. And your role there is you're basically the point man between the project manager who's above you on your firm and the uh, subcontractors. And you're processing what's, what's called submittals, which are basically uh, product sh- information sheets that are submitted to confirm that the materials that are going to be installed by that subcontractor are approved. They're, uh, you know, the right material, the right flooring, the right structural studs, light fixtures, what have you. And that's a, a big paper processing kind of role, but it also teaches you a lot about the details and how to be organized, you know, read the specifications, the, yeah. the granular level of construction, um, which is a different aspect from, you know, as you advance to a senior level role where you're more high level, you know, global, global management, you're actually deep in the weeds and details as a project engineer, making sure that, you know, everything that shows up to the site is correct. And, and when they, it gets installed, it's it's going to be accepted by the design team and the ultimately the owner. Yep, yep. And 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 oftentimes there's there's shop drawings with as part of the submittal process, which really gets into the details of of what they're installing, and it it allows the design team to review it. You know, as you know, and, and I, I always call it the last like line of defense, if you will. Like this is the like you, you get it submitted. So, so if the architect approves it, that's their one last chance to make any changes on their design. And yeah. uh, they often get they often get approved as noted, which there's minor comments, and then we can proceed with ordering the materials. Yeah, and and, and also uh, another another point to note, which was a lesson learned on my first job. There's also sample submittals, often for color or texture. And those also get approved in, in, in many cases. And when that when those materials arrive to the site, a good project engineer who knows what they're doing should be going out there and bringing the sample out and checking that it is in fact the material that was approved. Yes. Um, and it matches. Yes. And uh, <laughs> I had a uh, I had a little kind of entrance facade wall in front of our uh, our main entry vestibule. I did not check that on my first project and the brick, the, the decorative brick showed up. Actually, it was decorative block to be specific. And it was about eight or nine courses up, you know, probably two days worth of work. And the superintendent was like, man, that, that block looks awful pink. Is that the right color? And sure enough, we brought it out there and it was not the right color. And it was a little situation we had to work our way through. Yeah. Yeah. I have that was one. the last time I didn't check a, uh, a material that showed up <laughs> on the job site. I'll, I'll share one that I have shared in the past. Uh, I was doing a Hilton Garden Inn hotel and, you know, you know, standard undercuts on doors are three quarters of an inch. You know, the pad and the carpet that was that was designed was much thicker. So we, we did not eat. We didn't coordinate, you know, and I'm the engineer at the time, assistant project manager. And that was my responsibility, coordinating that undercut to make sure it was it was enough to get, you know, over the flooring and we had to cut 282 doors. <laughs> that was, uh, that was one I'll never forget. Oh yeah. <laughs> With union carpenter uh, rates, that, that one added up. Quick. It added up. Absolutely. Yep. We got through it though. 
So a- after Henderson, you you had a uh, short stay at Skanska, which which is actually very similar to me. I was only at Skanska, I think about a year and a half. I think that's about what you were too as well, right? Yeah, yeah, about a year and a half, yep. And then Hunter Roberts for approximately, what, six years, Mike, was it? Let's see, uh, 2005 to 2011, yeah, so it was only six years. It seemed much longer. And then you went to the Holder Group. Yeah. What was your role there? As I went from big project to big project with Hunter Roberts, and at the time, so we had finished the Red Bull Soccer Stadium in 2010, March of 2010. About February 2010, I got pulled into New York City because uh, the economic downturn closed our New Jersey office, and that got absorbed into into Manhattan. So we were uh, commuting. I was commuting quite a ways, about two hours each direction, and so. I, that's when I worked on the Conrad New York Hotel. And after about two years in, in New York City, my son was born. I kind of wanted to get out of that long commute. I was, I was, uh, uh, you know, leaving the, leaving the house at 5 a.m., getting home at 7 a.m. at best with no traffic. And, uh, you know, my son, my first kid was born and I was only seeing him on the weekends, essentially. So I knew it, it was something I didn't really want to do long term anymore. In addition to that, I was kind of getting, I wanted a little something more and I didn't really know what it was at the time. I, you know, when you're working in the, in the field, at, in any, probably any construction field, you are constantly getting reached out and contacted by a headhunter. So one day I, I uh, was particularly unsatisfied with what I was doing at work. And a headhunter, you know, reached out with an interesting opportunity to be an operations manager for a smaller uh, GC in North Jersey called the Holder Group, and went on many interviews. I, don't even, I think there was four or five different interviews that I went on, and it sounded very promising. I was, I'd be the kind of second in charge of the company, other than the owner slash, you know, president, founder slash president. And there was also an incentive to kind of work my way into an ownership role. So it was something that really piqued my interest to kind of call my own shots, you know, develop my own kind of culture and, you know, how to, how to, how to treat our employees, how to treat our clients and subcontractors that I was kind of lacking at that point with uh, Hunter Roberts. And also I was interested in, you know, in developing into an ownership role mm-hmm. and also saw it as a way to kind of have the latitude with my time and my, my own schedule so that I could start balancing home life a little bit better, which was in my opinion, very out of whack at the time, mm-hmm. you know, knowing full well that I want to be able to attend games and practices and coach sports here and there and, yeah. and all that stuff. And that was not going to happen working in Manhattan for a large firm. So I took a shot and not the right decision. <laughs> it was a very disorganized company of which, even though I was second in charge, I had little control in ability to, you know, change directions. Mm-hmm. After going there, you know, I, I, I found out that one of the, one of the senior guys there had only been there for four years really good dude, really good superintendent. And he said, 
you're the I wanted to say in the in the four years he was there, I was like the 28th employee that had come in oh, and wow. and or left. 28 oh, wow. employees, like there was only seven people that worked there, and 28 had come in and out. So that's nice. You can you can you can figure out the mm-hmm. level of dysfunction sure. in that environment. And coming from a you know super organized couple of companies in a row, yeah, on mega projects, and you know our change orders were bigger than the, the largest projects that this company had done and they were still unorganized. It was, it was not a great, uh, great fit. I guess the headhunter didn't share that with you, huh? They, they didn't share yeah, that? No, no, he did, <laughs> definitely did not. Um, definitely left those details out. And uh, mm-hmm. if, I, if you're ever getting contacted by a headhunter, I would definitely ask for the turnover uh, sure. of the firm. <laughs> That's the last headhunter I dealt with. So I, I hopefully we'll never have to do that again. But. Lesson learned. Yeah. You know what? What that opportunity did give me, though, is the time to start seeing that the there is an opportunity to start a company. And you know, if this if this company had been in in existence for fifteen years, as dysfunctional as they were, you know, I I started to to see an opening that you know maybe maybe it is possible because I always did want to. I w- always was interested in people that had their own businesses in or out of construction. But a lot of my friends had had painting businesses and landscaping businesses. And I always wondered, like, how do you do it? Like in a small, you know, suburban market, like how do you keep that those work that work coming in and those jobs? Like it kind of dumbfounded me. But having that opportunity to see a small business in operation and you know, the different projects that do come up, even for a firm that's, you know, not super reputable like that, mm-hmm. gave me the confidence that it was worth a shot to uh, to try to open up our own our own firm. So when did you decide to open up MP Consulting Services? When, like when? Yeah. So I was there, I was at Holder Group for five months and about four, four and a half months in, we were not winning a lot of jobs, you know, a lot of our bids. We were like, you know, number two on like five or six bids in a row. Mm-hmm. We didn't have a lot of work going on. So I, I was starting to feel uncomfortable, like this isn't very stable. And also recognize that that the gentleman who owned the, owned the business, he had contacts, but he didn't have good relationships that would pull him over mm-hmm. that, you know, number two bidder threshold. You know, ideally number the number two bidder is probably the best spot to be in in construction because you probably have the job correct. The low bidder more than likely, you know, if they're drastically low, they probably don't have the job correct and mm-hmm. there could be problems as an owner. So being in that number two spot in private, privately held bids is a perfect spot to be in, but he didn't seem to have those relationship. So with that writing on the wall and one of the subcontractors that I knew also kind of bringing it to my attention, like, you know, he doesn't seem to have much work. Like, you're a pretty big salary. You're, you know, the biggest overhead there, you know, are you, is your job secure? And I, then I started to think about it, like, probably not. Mm-hmm. He doesn't need a director of operations if there's not much operating going on. <laughs> so I started to set some things in motion over that last couple of weeks, making contacts at some of my old, old clients, hearing about some you know, jobs at smaller jobs that they had coming up that 
if I did make the leap, I could get on their bidders list. And about two weeks after I started, you know, what researching like, like that, that mm-hmm. uh, putting my feelers out, I ended up getting laid off. The, the guy came to me and was like, you know, you know, I, I'll let you go. Yeah. Which was really, it's funny. I, I hated being there. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it was one of the more stressful time periods I've ever been through. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hated being there. It was like a toxic scenario. Mm-hmm. And I saw it on the writing on the wall. But have, being laid off for the first time in my life was like a mega blow to the ego. And I, okay. it was hard. Mm-hmm. It was like, I felt like, I don't know, I felt lost. Even though I mm-hmm. wanted to leave, mm-hmm. it wasn't like I didn't call the shot. It was kind of like getting broken up with, mm-hmm. you know, in, in a sense, it was like, oh my God, like, but, you're but, like, but, me go? But relief, <laughs> but a relief too, though, right? Oh, oh yeah. yeah. I mean, I slept yeah. better that next week mm-hmm. than I probably ever have in my life, mm-hmm. not having to go back into that environment. But at the same time, I was like, holy crap, I got let go. Like, I, <laughs> I never imagined I would have been let go from anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, yeah. when we were at Hunter Roberts and, and they laid off, you know, 300 employees. Like I didn't look at, I was a, one of 10 left at, from New Jersey. Like, so it was, that was hard. Yeah. Even though I wanted to, which is, which mm-hmm. is kind of interesting. You know, <laughs> it shows how uh, your ego can, can take over sometimes, even though you want something and mm-hmm. it's, if it's not in your term, it, it, <laughs> it hurts a little bit. So you opened up MP consulting services, I believe in 2011. Correct or 2012? 2012. Yep. Yeah. yeah. April April of 2012. And yep. So we're, we are uh, eight and a half years in. And and I partnered with Mike going on six and a half years ago. So originally it was called MP Consulting Services, which is our legal name. Then we changed it to MPC Builders just to just to give clients more clarity of what we do. Is, is, is that how you would describe the, the, the DBA name change? Yeah. So w- when I started the company, I kind of saw my role as being like an owner's rep, not so much a general contractor. And the difference being like, I'd be a uh, consultant to the to a larger client, kind of oversee the general contractor for the client. But that business model is great in New York City, but not so great in a smaller county of New Jersey. Uh, there weren't a lot of opportunities for that. So only about six months in, I was kept being asked to be just a general contractor. Like, we want you to build this for us and just give us the price to build it and you hire everybody else and, and deal with it. So I sh- quite very quickly transitioned to be a, a general contractor. And, you know, 98% of our work since has been uh, from a GC standpoint. Mm-hmm. So the name the name took a little while to evolve because mm-hmm. we were starting to build a name for ourselves. And a couple of years ago, we decided to, to make the switch to MPC Builders as our kind of trade name for marketing and, and you know, clarity purposes. Yep. Got it. Now, what, what was it about construction that led you down that path? Like, what, what, why construction? When did you know you wanted to get into the construction management world? When I was a young kid, probably like. 10 years old, 12 years old, my parents were divorced and my mom had was dating a guy who uh, actually like owned, we, we lived in New Hampshire and he actually owned this whole side of this mountain and 
uh, I would say is probably five, 600 acres. And he was like a kind of a developer. Like he would, he, he, he uh, was like a site contractor, you know, heavy equipment. He kind of like put the roads in and, and created the home pads and kind of developed this land. And he was kind of like the first person that I knew in the construction world. And, you know, he, we didn't have a lot of money, you know, they had, they were pretty well off or mm-hmm. he was pretty well off, you know, he skied a lot, you know, it, it was just kind of like a, 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 a lifestyle that I admired. And I realized mm-hmm. that like construction gave that to him. Mm-hmm. I was probably, you know, between 11 and 12 years old, I think at the time. Mm-hmm. And they dated for a few years until we ended up moving, moving back to New Jersey where her family, my mother's family was from. But yeah, he was like my first example of like, like you can be pretty successful, like building things. Then from there, I kind of always had like that interest in the back of my head. But, you know, there were times I thought I was going to be a police officer or detective and, you know, mm-hmm. different things like going through high school. And then when I went to college, ironically, there was a, a freshman, you know, single credit freshman required class at ECU first semester and it basically like talked about the like the 10 best the 10 most needed industries for future graduates like the, you know the mm-hmm. I don't know I don't know if they say the hottest over the next 10 yeah, years exactly or, like yeah, you know right, the right. 10 mm-hmm. the 10 biggest fields acquiring mm-hmm. uh, future future uh, professionals over the next 10 years Mm-hmm. And construction, the trades, as well as construction management was one of them. And it highlighted the fact that the majority of, say, 75% of the workers in those roles were 55 and up already. And this is two, you know, in 2000, actually 1997. So, and then it gave a, you know, a background of what construction management is. And ECU actually happened to have one of the better construction management programs in the country. That was a rel- relatively new program, but it was like a top five or 10 rated program in the country. So I said, all right, I want to do construction management. And I took a couple classes that next semester. And then I chickened out because I saw a couple of pretty difficult trigonometry and structural engineering mm-hmm. classes coming up on the course list. And I'm like, I'm not going to be able to pass those. I didn't have the confidence to <laughs> to think I'd, I'd be able mm-hmm. to do that. That was pretty, pretty lax at day school at the time. So I put, withdrew from the program and was just taking, you know, liberal arts classes and, you know, wasting, wasting time and money and, and, mm-hmm. uh, and credits. And probably about two semesters went by. But during that time, I wanted to get in-state tuition. So I needed to go to school part-time and work full-time to establish residency in North Carolina. And, you know, in-state tuition was a difference from, at the time, 25 grand a year till $2,500 a semester. So it was a drastic savings. And for a kid who had no no money whatsoever, that looked pretty attractive. So, So I framed houses for about 10 straight months. And uh, most of them were like little, you know, Eastern North Carolina ranch homes, a lot of which was actually off-campus housing. And, but I, I kind of got a feel for construction a little, a little bit again. 
And when I went went back full time uh, the following fall, I said, you know what, you know, screw it. I'm gonna I'm just gonna buckle down. Every time I've tried, I've been able to to succeed in a class. So I'm just gonna have to do my mm-hmm. homework. And sure enough, I got like an A in both of those classes that I was scared of. And you know, the rest is history. So I luckily I went back into it, and you know, a couple of years later, I graduated with a construction management degree. How about physics one and physics two? How'd you do on those? I don't even remember. I don't remember. I did pretty well in most of the math courses and the and the core courses. Statistics, ironically, I did really bad in. I think I got like a D. And I'm like a oh, statistics wow. guy now, which yeah. is kind of ironic. Yeah. But yeah, yeah that's it, surprising. There's the difference yeah. between, you know, academic smart and mm-hmm. functional smart. Like, you know, so I'm sure a lot of your future listeners uh, will, will appreciate this. Like, it was the way I did my 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 problems and got my answer that was wrong. I got the right mm-hmm. answer, but the way I got to it wasn't the way the teacher wanted me to do it. Got it. So you know, yep. I, instead <laughs> of getting a ninety-eight or a hundred, I got like a seventy-two because I didn't do all the steps that they wanted me to sit the to right stay. way. Yeah, right. As if there's a right way in the real world. Most of those professors and teachers, I don't think, ever worked worked out in the real world so (laughs) exactly theory theory and functional which actually leads me to you you're actually an adjunct professor you did that for a short short stint right yeah tell us a little bit about that so i was um traveling around uh pennsylvania you know philly new jersey and new york teaching different job site groups how to do financial forecasting for construction work in place forecasting it's called and also like cost control systems. And the head of risk management for Hunter Roberts at the time was an adjunct professor at NYU's Shack Institute of Real Estate. And it was their, their master's in construction management program. And the course was uh, 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 financial and cost controls. So she asked me to guest teach one, one class in like the fall semester and teach what I was actually the same thing I was teaching all the people from Hunter Roberts. And I did that for the fall semester. And then she asked me to come back again in the spring. And then the following fall, she couldn't teach the course and they needed somebody to fill it in. And she recommended me, if I was interested, she recommended me to, uh, to NYU. So I, I ended up teaching that for, I think, two semesters. And it was really interesting. I actually did it. Initially, I did it as a guest to overcome a fear of public speaking. I was like, even though I was, you know, working my way up in the company and I could run a meeting on a job site and I was on like medium sized, you know, 20, $30 million jobs at the time. I had, I was comfortable running a job site meeting, but the thought of actually standing up in front of people and public speaking about a topic, like I would get cold sweats and not have moisture in my mouth. Mm-hmm. And I mean, to- totally. <laughs> I shut think that's down. pretty normal, but yeah, I get. So, uh, I can relate. so that sure. was like, I was like, well, there's no better way to get over that than being mm-hmm. completely on an island. For- force yourself to get out there. Professionals, yeah. not even students. These were like professionals that are working either in for construction firms. So a couple of them were grad students that hadn't actually mm-hmm. worked in the work in you know in the field yet. But most of the students, there was probably 18 or so in each class, were either 
professionals in the for large scale developers in New York City, uh, you know, project managers, project execs for construction firms. So it was like a mm-hmm. a group of people who actually had some knowledge. Um, so you couldn't fake your way through it by any means. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, that, that totally um, alleviated, not totally, but alleviated a lot of my fears of public speaking for sure. Yeah, it was interesting. Very cool. One of the things I, I, I love about you, and there's and there's many, but you, your your desire to challenge yourself and challenge me too, which which I've learned a, a ton from you over the last six plus years, and you know also holding yourself accountable and holding me accountable and people in general. You know, the accountability is something I think, you know, everyone needs at, at, at certain levels, but just the, ch- you know, your desire to want to keep challenging yourself, which is something I, I want to do too. And, and we have been, and we'll continue to do so. It's, uh, it, it's an admiring trait, man. Appreciate it. Definitely that. is. I, you know, in the past eight and a half years, I haven't had a boss. I haven't had a superior. And when you don't have a superior, yeah, you have to go out and find people to like, challenge you and like find things to challenge you because like you have no there's no challenge to your way of thinking your point of view there's and that's not a good position to be in yeah any you know for any topic in life let alone running running a business and and how lonely it can be too you're out there by yourself absolutely no just trying to figure it out like it can't be explained uh, unless you, you should try to do it and try to build a business it's uh (laughs) <laughs> There's so many words for it. <laughs> so many words for it. So what do you what do you think, if any, COVID-19 uh, is going to change our, you know, the construction industry at all? What, 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 do you, what do you see long-term potential changes from everything we've been through the last six, six plus months with COVID? It's hard to say in the big jobs. You know, construction was uniquely situated to handle something like that because we're we're always familiar with and implementing uh, PPE personal protective equipment so now that we kind of have an understanding of COVID more and it's not like the first month where we you know had no real understanding of how it was spreading and how deadly it was you know if if something like this continues or comes up again in the future I think that the construction construction industry will not skip a beat instantly know what the right ppp is and and throw those procedures in place and Mm -hmm. and be off and running so i don't see it impacting construction all that much in the future i really don't economically you know we're seeing in in my area of the woods and i'm sure others uh, suburbs of cities like a mass exodus of, of people living in those cities or wanting to live in those cities some driven by the fact that mm-hmm. that their companies that they work for don't require them to be in their desk at, in their office anymore. So we mm-hmm. are seeing a, a big exodus down to our area of, of New Jersey, people buying houses, buying mm-hmm. land, wanting to build houses. So our home building business is, I think, going to really take off even more so over the next year or two. And that, you know, more than likely will be sustained. I don't see even if even if things completely die down, I still see people not wanting to live in crowded buildings and areas anymore. So it just in case this happens again. Yeah. So 
I can see like residential, single family residential being big by me, multifamily residential on a probably a smaller scale, you know, with more like exterior entry as opposed to common hallways and, mm-hmm. you know, common space amenities, I think. Hospital industries mm-hmm. and healthcare in general, I think will have a ton of work coming up because they're, they're going to be retrofitting their, you know, emergency rooms and, and check-in areas for a future pandemic to separate pandemic-related clientele from people that are there just because they got in a car mm-hmm. accident or broke their arm and not mixing those populations. So that's going to be a big, big industry going forward. Distribution centers for e-commerce was already taking off like a rocket ship, and that's going to probably triple, I would imagine, because crazy people who yeah. weren't using e-commerce, yeah. like the elder, elderly, are now ordering their groceries mm-hmm. and ordering their paper are. towels on online, yep. and that's just going to expedite that that industry even even faster. So yeah, I mean, it's going to it'll probably drive construction in many different market sectors, I would imagine. You know, that, that for, fortunately yeah. for our industry, I think it'll, it'll create a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, economic movement. Mm-hmm. I agree. And maybe even higher ed, Definitely. you know, maybe even, you know, we're, we're um, big in higher ed and maybe even higher ed will reimagine some things. You know, there'll probably mm-hmm. be more like retrofits for virtual classrooms. So they can easily just flip the switch and go from in-person instruction to just stand, yeah. you know, professors standing in the in yeah. the office or the classroom by themselves broadcasting, and maybe even in yeah. lower ed, you know, elementary and high school levels, mm-hmm. you know, retrofitting the the tech involved with being able to broadcast school. Mm-hmm. It's definitely going to uh, tone down the commuting. For sure, going going to work. There's there's going to be a lot of businesses that are going to be allowing that. You know, obviously you need to be the right 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 person. You know, with the res- with with the right response. You know, responsible party to to do that. But yeah, it's there's going to be many changes in respect to that. Tell us a little bit about your the Cure JM Foundation and 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 how that came about. You know, with your daughter. I'd like you to share that. Yeah. Three years ago now, just over three years, she was diagnosed with a, a really rare autoimmune disease called juvenile uh, dermatomyositis. It affects two to three children out of a million uh, in the U.S. each year. So U.S. population is 300 something million. So it's, you know, maybe 600 cases uh, active in the U.S. of all ages. Uh, so it's super, super rare. And it uh, affects the muscle tissue and skin cells in their shoulders and neck area, as well as their legs and, and hips, uh, causing muscle weaknesses and rash. And ex- extended cases could lead to an inability to swallow and breathe properly and so on. So kind of a range of, of symptoms. And fortunately, we, we caught her really early on and she responded really well with treatment. But being a autoimmune disease, um, it will always live inside of her and can flare at any point uh, in time. So, you know, it's a, it's a real hard thing to process as a parent with a, a sick child. And after about the first year, we started, you know, just processing it ourselves, we started to get more involved with um, the only foundation in the, in the country that 
is dedicated specifically to this disease, uh, juvenile myositis, and that's the Cure JM Foundation. And we started getting involved with them just with support groups and went to their national conference and just kind of educating ourselves on the disease and upcoming treatment potentials um, because the, the treatments right now are, you know, basically high doses of steroids would have really nasty side effects. And then there's uh, intravenous um, IVIG and a, a very low dose uh, chemotherapy drug called methotrexate. So right now, Ryan's just on methotrexate once a week. Um, she had a year, 11 months of steroids, 24 months of IVIG, and we're on our like 37th month of methotrexate. Uh, so hopefully she'll be completely in remission and medication free in the near future. But seeing, seeing what she had to go through and what our family had to go through, you know, steroids make a child, usually these kids get it around three years old, two to four years old is a pretty prominent uh, age, age to uh, come down with their initial flare. You know, the steroids really wreak havoc on them. They blow up like balloons and, you know, like she went from 22 pound three-year-old to a 42 pound, you know, three-year-old in, in two months, three months and wild mood swings and, you know, just lack of control mentally like that. And, and then hearing what the foundation is doing, it's like a, a family driven foundation and um, it could use support support for outreach, support for, for fundraising. So we started to get involved with fundraising. And this past year, um, I decided that we were going to donate 10% of our profit from each of our projects to the Cure Jam Foundation to help further fundraising and really try to, to make an impact in, in finding uh, safer treatments and funding research for safer treatments and hopefully one day a cure, but even safer treatments would be a life changer for these kids. And maybe even for Ryan, if she ever flared down the road, um, alternative to steroids would be, would be a huge game changer for her and for us as parents, you know, worrying about starting back at square one uh, with her disease. So, so right now, yeah, we're, we're, we're donating 10% of our profit from every project that's awarded to us. And we make that donation in honor of the client that chose to award the project to, uh, to MPC. So, you know, we, I think that, you know, having a name charity for a business kind of cements the legacy of the business. You know, you're not just out there to make a profit and, you know, and take that profit um, for yourself as, as the, you know, the business owner or operator. And it kind of shows our clients like who we are, what we stand for, choosing to, to work with us is going to a greater cause as well. And I think mm -hmm. that, you know, any, any businesses that do that, yeah. you know, how do you not support them? You know, if, if all things were equal and our, our bid is mm -hmm. the same price as the other guy and we can build a great building or a great house and so can the other guy, like, how can you not go with the guy who's taking 10% of what he's going to make from your project and, and, you know, donate great, great to a cause like that. And it's, it's just, it's, it's incredible to me that it, it's so the percentage that, that get that, that have it, it's so, so low. And, and I guess that's why there's no pharmaceutical 
you know, treatments. Yeah. I mean, there's uh, no whatsoever, incentive right? I mean, it's, to it's just free, these I mean, say there's 600 kids and most of them go into remission by 15. So like there's no incentive to create new medications to treat a population of 300 people, you know, actively, maybe less at any given time. So most, actually all of the treatments for this disease come from what's called off-label uses, meaning uh, such and such uh, medication is developed to treat, you know, uh, arthritis, which affects a larger population. And in other clinical trials, it's found to be be useful in this disease, so so the FDA will prove and approve an off-label use for that drug, and every drug that is mm-hmm. used to to, to treat a, a trial with JM is an off-label use. So that's some of the research that that we're doing with Cure JM right now is okay. is getting involved with like-minded uh, drug treatments that are like in the same family of symptoms and funding the clinical trials to to then allow uh, the FDA as well as insurance companies to you know be used in, in our cases. So yeah it's 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 mm-hmm. it's interesting to get really involved with uh, with a foundation like that any any philanthropic organization and the level of work involved with it and it's it's very very rewarding. So regardless of what industry you get into if you can kind of align yourself with a uh, a philanthropy like that it's, it it goes a long way. Are you considering creating a nonprofit? I am. I yeah, we um, talk about it before. So, a woman we know uh, through one of the coaching programs I'm involved with has a foundation called Hope Loves Company, and they have camps for child caregivers of of uh, where where one one or one parent or the other parent has uh, ALS, uh, Lou Gehrig's disease. And through talking with her, it really sparked an interest to create like even like a once a year camp that would be free for all these families with JM, which aren't many, um, but to kind of gather in one spot, unlike a camp activity, you know, maybe go for hikes and uh, kayaking and, and have some like personal development slash support speakers and services and try you know just to get that community together and make people realize that there are other people like them out there because there's a lot of people don't know anyone you know uh, i know of like five families in new jersey um and a handful in the in the greater philadelphia area Uh, and that's a lot you know if you're in you know missouri there might be two families in the entire state you do feel kind of alone in those scenarios. And uh, I think it would be a really cool way to give back to that community and support that community um, in the future. So it's something that's in the back of my head. You had reached out to a few of those families and weren't you doing like a little, uh, yeah. was it a Zoom um, no, call? I, I Have did, you done um, any of those so lately? One of the fundraisers I'm doing is this hike endurance hike called 29029. The event I'm going to is going to be in Vermont. It just got moved to 2021 because of COVID. It's supposed to be in October of 2020, but it's 17 hikes up Stratton Mountain in Vermont. You hike up, take the gondola down, and repeat it 17 times until you've climbed the equivalent of Mount Everest, 29,029 feet. So 
and you have to complete it in 36 hours. So as part of that uh, event, I created a, a fundraiser called Ascent to a Cure. 100% of the proceeds go to CureJM. If anybody wants to support it, it's uh, www.crowdrise.com backslash Ascent number two, a cure. That's in my uh, uh, LinkedIn, I mean, uh, Facebook and Instagram profiles and whatnot. Uh, so as part of that, I wanted to interview 17 different families uh, of CureJM children to tell, you know, 17 different stories of, you know, how they're, how they made it through, how they're making it through, how their, you know, initial onset was and, and whatnot. And to try to build that community and, and share those stories that, you know, with the Cure JM world that, you know, everything you're going through, other people have too. And, and a lot of these people have made it, you know, a lot of these kids have gone through, gotten out and, and, and hit remission and whatnot. Mm-hmm. I think that's really important because when you don't have other examples of people who've conquered the, the, the challenge, the, that it's, uh, it seems, it seems a lot more hopeless. Yeah. Uh, There's no or a lot more, yeah. you know, difficult or, Hopeless. or hard yeah. to overcome. So I've done, I think, four of those interviews so far. Uh, fortunately for my interviewing lack, the event got postponed to 2021. So now I'll be able to finish those interviews. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, that, that's yeah, been a sure. lot of fun, you know, <laughs> being able to know those pe- different people and staying in touch with them and stuff. So Hopefully this process will also inspire other people to come up yeah. with any event that they want to enter, any type of a challenge or, or whatever, and just, you know, get more involved, support the foundation, get more outreach going and, and kind of share what they're going through with one another and, and create more of a community. Excellent. Yeah. The, the, the things that COVID has changed. I mean, we, we missed our second JM mm-hmm. walk this year in uh, Philly. And, and I was surprised how many people were there last year. They must have been coming from pretty far away, I would think, right? Yeah, a lot of a lot of friends and family get involved. Yeah. Um, yeah. I would say there's probably like a, I would say close to 100 people in that walk. Yeah, it was um, decent. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, you know, maybe as far as Pittsburgh went there, mm-hmm. um, there were seven, uh, 14 chapters. So, you know, some, some are greater distances than others where the Philadelphia chapter we're involved with. The New York one is on Long Island. Okay. Uh, I'm not really sure where the next closest chapter is. Uh, maybe, okay. maybe DC mm-hmm. uh, might be the next closest one. So yeah, it's a pretty big area. So what do you like to do outside of work? What are you passionate about? Hobbies? I mean, I know, but, but share, but share, uh, <laughs> and, 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 and share our newest one please. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, anything, anything that's, that keeps me active. Um, that's one of the things that I, I felt was lacking when I was, a you know, a commuter working in a, with a big firm was that like physical activity and health and that side of the balance equation. So, you know, exercise of any form, um, is huge, you know, stress manager and, you just feel better. And I'm always trying to like find a, you know, some type of a hack to get better clarity, better energy. You yes, know. you are. <laughs> so I'm willing to try anything. Yeah. I'm kind of a human guinea pig in that sense. You know, personal development, as you know, we've, we've gone to mm-hmm. Tony Robbins con- conferences and uh, Lewis Howes conferences and, mm-hmm. and uh, 
different coaching programs we've been involved with. So awesome. that's, that's definitely a passion yeah. of ours and very important, I think, for anyone, really for anyone, but especially for people that have the stress of um, building and, and maintaining a business. Um, it's kind of a lonely world and to find other people in that in that same boat is is uh, is really helpful. And uh, through this 29029 uh, training program, uh, hiking, we've been doing a lot of hiking, especially since COVID. And uh, you and I just went on a uh, half of what we wanted to do, but it was a, in all, it was a 15 mile, 6,000 vertical foot uh, backpacking trip. And uh, we'll, I, I think we'll certainly be doing more of that um, in the future. Completing the uh, the Pemi Loop up in New Hampshire is on the list for the next year, and I think I want to do a, a rim to rim to rim in the Grand Canyon. Grand, Grand Canyon as, as yeah. another one too. That's that's always yeah. been like a a bucket list dream of mm -hmm. mine, and uh, and I think it's time to cross that one off the list this year. So Utah, twenty twenty one is going to be it. Yeah, yeah. I I want to I want to hit them all, man. Utah, Montana. We talked about Seattle too. Just some great yeah. places to uh, to check out and hike for sure. Yep. Physically challenging, unplugged from the day to day and social media and emails and uh, you know just time to think and talk and uh, it's nothing better than that. Ultimate burn, reset. Burn five thousand calories too. That that's not that's yep. not too bad. What was that? Twenty nine thousand steps. Was, was that was that what it was? Twenty nine thousand seven hundred steps. <laughs> <laughs> it's incredible. All in a day and a quarter with with a thirty six yeah. pound backpack on. <laughs> I think I felt it the most. I was <laughs> feeling it for a week, week and a half. Yeah, me too. So, for our listeners that are out there interested in construction, you know, whether it be union and or or you know open shop labor, what would be your best advice to someone listening that wants to get into construction? Not necessarily construction management, but, you know, labor of any type, uh, you know, skilled trades. What, what, what would be your advice to someone that is interested in getting in construction? I would say if they're like in the high school age age group, you know, trying out the, the tech schools, the trade schools is an option. You can also, you know, maybe work some Saturdays or uh, or summer jobs with uh you know, any of the trades, uh, you know, someone that you know that uh, that might have a, uh, so, you know, subcontractor uh, business or, you know, a home building business and just get get out on the job site any way you can and uh, get a little a little taste of it and feel for it. You know, it's not too much of a commitment to do it that way, but you, you can kind of just see the inner workings. Obviously, if you did go to school, definitely do summer internships to make sure it's the right fit. If you're going to college to a construction management or engineering background, uh, definitely do internships, you know, so that you don't go all the way down the road and graduate and then realize it's not really for you. And, uh, you know, just get a feel. And, and if you're not sure which one it is, see if you can try a few of them out. Um, you know, the small, small non-union residential type businesses are always looking for responsible people to work even if you have zero technical skill they'd be willing to train you as long as you show up on time and put in a hard day's work so 
that, that's probably the easiest uh, and least committed way of doing it uh, before you commit too many resources to it. But you know, get get a get a feel for for what it's like on a job site a little bit um, and see if it's right for you. Right. Even going to work with someone yeah. that you know just to shadow them for a couple no, of I days love that idea. Uh, would yeah. be worthwhile. Yeah, just get a little taste of the field, you know? field experience. Yep. I've I've had a couple of high school kids uh, drive around with me for a few days over over a couple of different summers, just seeing if it was for them. You know, they're considering different fields to go into for college, and you know, we worked worked for a couple of weeks here and there, even just cleaning up. You get a kind of a feel for what yep. it's like out there. I like it. I like it. Well, I really appreciate you coming on today, man. I learned I learned some more things about you. Good, good, good stuff. <laughs> it was fun. Hey, man, do you have any me. questions for me at all, or anything else you wanna you wanna uh, put out there? No, just um, you know we're trying to build our uh, our social media following. So uh, follow us at uh, uh, Instagram at MPC Builders, uh, Facebook at MPC Builders. My personal is uh, Michael Parnell underscore NJ, like New Jersey. And if you'd like to get involved with any of our fundraisers for CureJM, the uh, links to those are in our uh, any, all three bios for those pages. And uh, yeah, just follow Nick's uh, podcast. Keep listening and sharing it. And uh, there's a lot of people out there that don't really know what they want to do. And um, this podcast, I think, is giving people a, a little inside scoop and taste of a number of different um construction trades as well as other trade related work uh, for different industries. And, um, you know, the best way to figure out what you want to do in life is to listen to other people uh, who've already done it. So keep listening and keep sharing and uh, good luck with the podcast. Thank you. Appreciate it, brother. Good having you, man. And yeah, man, uh, anytime. I'm sure I'll be talking to you this week. <laughs> Sounds good. Have a good night. Get back to your, you uh, too, your son's, your son's soccer, right? <laughs> Take care, buddy. Have a good night. See you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Constructing Greatness podcast. If you enjoyed what you've heard today, please share it with a friend. And if you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcast player. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback, you can reach me directly at nicholasofac at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening.